Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 132. A quick note of thank you to AJL and Jacques and Kosanati. Your kind comments and emails, this series, of course, is nothing without my wonderful audience, so thank you. Gangans, which is Khoisan for thank you. Voortrekker leader Peter Tief knew that he had to negotiate for any land in Natal with the Amazulu king Dingan. So with that in mind, he left his family on the top of the escarpment, as he heard at the end of last episode, taking four of the wagons and a small party of 15 men over the side of the Drakensberg, by way of what we now call Retief's Pass, and that was in October 1837. He was hopeful that Gerrit Maritz would join up with him, so he loitered for a while at the base of the Drakensberg. Realizing after almost two weeks it was futile to continue to delay, he turned for Port Natal, or what was now called Durban. The first negotiations he needed to conduct were not with the Amazulu, but the fractious and rebellious Durban traders. If any land was going to be seconded to the Voortrekkers, he needed to clear any plans with the semi-desperate crew living around the fledgling port. At the back of his mind was a real fear that his actions would prompt the British government to take a greater interest in Natal. So far, the governors in the Cape had been lukewarm about annexing any further territory, after the Sixth Frontier War. Piet Retief had left the Cape to escape British rule, and the Voortrekkers wanted to keep it that way. It took 90 hours to ride from the base of the Drakensberg Mountains to Durban, and the exhausted group of trekkers rode into the harbour town on the 20th of October. Like other visitors, Retief was shocked to note that there were 53 Englishmen, no white women, only black ones. Well, we know that was not quite true. There were a few white women... But for the trekker, the traders' marriage and relationships was a bit of a surprise. Not that the Englishmen there cared, for they welcomed Retief warmly anyway. Here were the feared Boers. The traders were hoping that the trekkers would provide some additional protection from Dingana's raiding. They had escaped Amazulu King's direct assault so far, but were apprehensive about what he planned in the long run. The Amazulu did not have a high regard for these traders, referring to them disparagingly as... Ababomvana, the little red ones, along with a host of other insults. Dingana was also acutely aware that in military matters he was in a somewhat weakened position. All the reports he'd heard about the British and how they defeated the Amakosa with their firearms and horses had shaken the Zulu king. He also had heard about the attack on Masekha and was about to hear about how Puthita and Ace had driven the Mzilikazi from Egabeni forever. Because they were merchants and traders first, and capitalists, the Englishmen were actually selling arms to Dingana, despite the fact he was their biggest threat, and that the firearms would likely be used against them they had taken to selling the Amazulu critical weapons as a form of appeasement. So let's be clear about this, the missionaries were also providing the Amazulu with firearms. That may come as a bit of a shock to the religious Puritans, but there's more than enough evidence both the British Church Missionary Society and the American Board Mission were smuggling arms to the Zulu. Dingana was very interested in these weapons, and growing more so in the hornless cattle as well, i.e. horses. Driven from Mzilikazi's territory, the Americans had arrived in what they called the Maritime Zulu's territory. These were both Presbyterian and Congregationalists, and included David Lindley, who had fled Mzilikazi, as you know. 
Retief met Alexander Bigger, who'd been anointed as commander of the Natal traders, should they be attacked by Dingana, and a man the Amazulu called Mazingensasa. That was particularly cruel, because to be strictly accurate, Mas is a prefix, usually referring to a female, and Ingensasa is a verb which means to move around or be restless. Basically, the Zulu were calling Bigger a restless little girl. Back in Cape Town, British officials were growing concerned. They heard about the Amandebele's fate and how the Fortrekkers were now heading to Natal. Instead of stabilizing things, the Boers appeared to be causing one war after another. The Cape officials also feared that the Durban settlers would be enticed to coalesce around the Boers and to turn the port into a capital of some kind of independent state. Equally, and what would be an ironic reversal much later after gold was discovered, Retief was aware that the English traders would be worried they'd be flooded by Trek Boers, and he sought to reassure them that the Boers did not want to take their land. He was going to ask Dingana for parcels of the precious commodity instead. English loyalists like Alan Gardiner, the half-missionary, half-diplomat, believed that if the Boers took Durban, then the English would have to leave, and that would be the end of their dream to turn Natal into a formally annexed British territory. The traders, meanwhile, were happy to have a few more gunslingers around. Original settler John Kane, or Jana, as the Zulus called him. Bigger was also happy about the Boers showing an interest in Natal. Bigger was Scots, and had arrived in Durban with his wife and 11 children along with his brother George and Khoisan's servants, and that was after his farm near Grahamstown had failed. Kane, Bigger, and twelve other English traders met Retief and signed a note reinforcing their friendship. In turn, Retief said he was pleased and prayed that the Almighty may bring us together for our mutual welfare. Shortly afterwards, the Boers saddled up for a much more difficult mission, to approach Dingana to try and get the king's permission to settle within his land. They couldn't just ride in. First they sent a message to one of the most important characters of this part of our story, a missionary called Reverend Francis Owen of the Church Missionary Society. Important because he was going to be an eyewitness to brutal events. Owen and his wife were not alone at Mgunglovo. His sister was there too, and an interpreter, as well as an artisan builder and mechanic called Richard Hulley, Hulley's wife and three children there too and Jane Williams, his Khoisan servant. They had rolled up to Dingana's great place in the second week of October 1837, less than a month before Retief was going to show up. Owen had built his mission in huts on the upper end of the Matawani Ridge. Matawani of the Nguani, of course, had been killed there, and that's where Dingana's execution victims ended up. Owen's mission did not have a direct line of sight into Dingana's main residence, his Izigotlo. He was gambling, in a way, was Owen, because the British had refused to sanction his trip to Dingana. But, as with these men in black, he was determined to bring Christianity to the heathen, so to speak. Dingana eyed Owen with suspicion, and sent some of his maids of honor, or Umtlumkulu, to join the missionary's congregation, just to keep an eye on things. It appeared Dingana was also more interested in the women learning how to sew, and shortly afterwards, he allowed some of Ngungudlovo's children, as well as a handful of his umpakati, his general population, to attend the sermons. Owen had a few character flaws, one being his propensity to be condescending, something that chafed Dingana. He was also heart-on-sleeve earnest, which Dingana did not trust, and after hearing Owen lecture in his halting Isizulu about one god, Dingana stopped the interminable sermon and glared. I and my people believe there is only one God. I am that God. 
he told an abashed Owen. Dingana also rejected Owen's prognostications about going to hell. We believe there is only one place to which all good people go. This is Zululand, continued the Zulu king. Then, pointing to a rocky hill in the distance, we believe there is one place where all bad people go. He was pointed to Ka Matwani, the ridge where he'd purposefully made Owen set up his mission, the place of execution. There is hell where all my wicked people go, said Dingon, case closed. But it didn't take long for Dingana to figure out that Owen was very useful. He could write letters. He was a willing Englishman, willing to try and help the Zulu. Like other African chiefs, the Zulu king knew the difference between the Boers, the traders, and the missionaries. They did not lump everyone together because of the color of their skin. That would be very stupid, after all. While Owen spoke bad Zulu, he hardly spoke any Dutch at all. That's why Retief wrote to the missionary in English on the 19th of October, telling him to inform Dingana that the trekkers had arrived in Natal and wanted to live in peace with the Amazulu. While this letter arrived before Retief heard about the Ama and Debele being thrashed and forever banished from the Transvaal, he deemed it appropriate to add a few unfortunate flourishes, which, as you'll hear, sealed his fate. He wrote superficially in his second language, English, and this made his sentiments more blunt, each sentence underlaid by ominous threats. His tone was going to colour all future discussions that the trekkers had with the Amazulu. Take this line, for example. The great book of God teaches us that kings who conduct themselves as Mzilikasi does are severely punished and that it is not granted to them to live or reign long. Dingon was startled by the implication. And if you desire to learn any greater length how God deals with such bad kings, you must inquire concerning it from your missionaries in your country. Retief was threatening Dingana directly. The Zulu king immediately began to plan Retief's death, according to oral tradition. When Retief's letter reached Dingana on the 26th of October 1837, the king called Owen to his Izikotlo and dictated a response. Because the Zulu king was attuned to diplomacy, he first offered to return 110 sheep that his warriors had seized from Mzalikatsi, but returned to the Boers who owned them. And he said the 12 cattle which his impi had looted, which were also from the Boers, had died. Dingana said he'd hand over their skins as a sign of goodwill. Instead of waiting for Dingana to formally call him to Mgungunglovo, which was the custom, Retief immediately set off on the 24th of October for Dingana's great place with his party of 15 Boers, joined by two Durban settlers, John Kane and Thomas Halstead. The group also included Kunrad Meyer, Lucas Meyer, Barend Liebenberg, Daniel Besaidnote and Rulof Dreyer. Thomas Halstead was an Natal boy. He was 26 years old by now and had lived in the Zulu country for 12 years. He spoke fluent Isu Zulu and was called Damuse by the Zulu. Damuse can mean two things. Da is a prefix used to make verbs negative and Muse means to speak or talk. So Damuse means not to speak or to be silent. But it can also be used figuratively to mean to be calm or even to be at peace. Dingana had used young Thomas's shooting skills in one of the raids against the Swazi king in 1836, but the unfortunate man was going to be hired by Retief as his formal interpreter. That meant he had only three months to live. Retief duly pitched up at Mgungunglovo on the 5th of November 1837, and the trekkers would have been struck by the vastness of the Zulu Great Place. It was spectacular, a giant amphitheater for the Zulu rituals, the seat of power, and the barracks of several Amabuto regiments. 
It was intimidating. Retief never wrote of what he thought of Mgonglovu, but he had never seen an African king's headquarters of this size before. It should have been a visual warning, but one that he appeared to miss. Archaeologists dug through this place in the mid-1970s, uncovering hundreds of floors of huts, post holes, grain pits, middens. All had been preserved through an act of arson, baked hard by its own destruction, caused by Dingana's fatal decision regarding the Boers. Dingana had a few other homesteads dotted around Zululand, but this was his pride and joy. Mkungunglovu was also the largest ikanda of any Zulu king in history. Captain Gardner described it as appearing as a giant racecourse, oval in shape, covered with an assemblage of haystacks, which were the original Zulu hut designs. It spread over 56 acres, about one mile around, and someone shouting on one side would not be heard on the other. About 6,000 people would gather inside for the ceremonies and the rituals. More than a 1,000 huts or izintlu were protected inside a stout outer layer of poles. The Zulu king had called Owen before him and dictated another letter before the Boers arrived. This was to Alan Gardiner, asking him for advice about how to react to the trekker's inevitable request for land. Because Dingana had already given Gardiner land for his mission station near the Tugela River, the Zulu king suggested that the missionaries share this land with the Boers. Dingana was forthright in that letter, saying he did not wish to share his land. The Ratif had travelled along the coast, and a few men stayed behind at the mouth of this large river, the Tugela, as he rode quickly towards his first meeting with Dingana, the man who put the fear of God into the settlers. The man Ratif was going to meet was an extremely complex individual, highly astute when it came to mental gymnastics. The Zulu king was 42 years old at this stage, overweight, tall, large, but very strong. He bathed every morning and used animal fats to soften his skin, a metro male of sorts perhaps, but don't forget that the Khoi and San had used animal fats for thousands of years to do the same. He had a barber who shaved him every day, trimming his beard. Manukocha Kapangisa would then catch the bits of hair in a small basket and burn the strands, then pour the ash into a stream so that it didn't fall into the hands of his enemies. If he spat, a servant would rub the saliva into the ground so this could not be collected. Too much information. But you get the picture about how paranoid Zulu kings were about wizards. Dingana was very embarrassed about his teeth. Three on the front row were so rotten that he often covered his mouth while speaking. One of the amazing facts about Dingana is that he loved choreographing the dances of his women and the warriors, and would then join in. When he sat to eat the meat cooked only by men, the vegetables and porridge were cooked only by the women, a maid of honor would bang two iron hoe heads together rapidly, signaling that no one nearby should cough or sneeze or spit. The water he drank was collected by the women from the Mtonjaneni Heights, from the Mkumbani Spring, way above the valley floor. It was clean and clear and cold. It was also sunset on the 5th of November when Retief and his men rode in and an unseasonably cold wind blew in with them. The trekkers' jackets were hardly sufficient to keep them warm. Dingana sent Owen to greet Retief, who led the trekkers to the entrance to the Ikanda, where an Induna escorted them into the sprawling homestead. Dingana did not appear, so Retief requested a meeting. Dingana sent a message saying they'd meet the next day, but killed an ox for his visitors, a sign of goodwill. Dingana was putting on a show. Behind the scenes, he was weighing up the options about how to deal with this threat. Gardner replied to Dingana's letter in the meanwhile, and in this letter, the man of God told a fib. 
Gardiner claimed that the settlers didn't want anything to do with the trekkers and that the Boers intended to take possession of the territory around Durban where they had established their own government. It was the same territory that Shanka had ceded to the settlers some time before, an area which radiated out from the harbour mouth for about 100 kilometres. The Boers wanted vast tracts of land, not this puny little 100-kilometre enclave. As Retief's men rode in, they were also watched by the men and women of Mgungudlovo. The Izugotlo was divided into two sections, the central black section where about 100 of the most desirable women lived. They were managed by one of Senzangakona's widows at first, Langazana Kaugubechi. She was short, stout, a friendly woman, according to oral tradition. She was then sent off to the Kwa Kangela Amakanda. Some Janisi, another of Senzanga Corner's widows, took over the Black Izigodlo. Amazing that after all this time, after Senzanga Corner's death decades before, then Shaka's death, these women were still alive and running the most important harim for the king of the Zulus. Dingana, like Shaka, never married. So the older women, or the women of power, the Amakoskaz, were widows of Singzangakona, as well as Dingana's aunts and sisters. As senior women, they decorated themselves with intricate top knots, greasing and clotting these with ochre, and wore leather skirts reaching their knees, hanging low over their derriers. They laced multicolored beads around their foreheads, their ankles, and their arms, the most important being red beads with white inside, and the small white beads, both of which came from Delagoa Bay. The brown and blue beads came from Cape Town shipped to Durban. Trade and women's accoutrements. Never underestimate the link between women's beauty products and world economic history. Both the women and the men had their earlobes pierced as a rite of passage marking the transition to adulthood and they placed small, highly polished, carved wooden plugs in these holes. Living alongside these elders were the maids of honour, the Mlunkulu, given as tribute to the king, his concubines. They wore a tiny covering of beads around their waists, a minuscule covering of nakedness, sometimes a slight loincloth about two inches square, and strings of red beads around their waists, white beads around their wrists. The most important of these women, the most favoured by Dingana, had brass or copper coils around their left upper arms, and four hollow brass rings around their necks, worn so tight that it was almost impossible for them to turn their heads. They suffered for this honour, as these rings heated up in the powerful Zululand sun and chafed the women, blistering their skin. Some poured water over the rings to cool them down and then rubbed fat onto their skin to soothe the chafing. But they wore these with pride, and woe betide any man who may gaze upon them when they left the Izugotlo to bathe or to relieve themselves. An armed escort marched with these women, and only the king could cast an eye over the maidens as they walked. Anyone else peering at them would be killed, except for the dwarf Mhaya, we'll get to in a minute. On the other side, the white Izigodlo, where 400 women lived under the charge of Bibi, Senzanga Corner's widow, Bibi the Beautiful, who was now very old. The white Izigodlo was also where the royal children would be brought up, but as I said, Dingana had none. All women who slept with him would be forced to abort the child should she fall pregnant, using a special concoction provided by a traditional healer. The women of the white Izigotlo were usually younger, less attractive. They had not caught Dingana's eye. They were captives from war, or wives and daughters of men the king had executed. These women retreated like slaves, with one difference. They could never be freed. 
They were used by the men of the royal house for sex and did the domestic chores around the Isigotlu, cultivating the gardens, fetching firewood and water, cooking food, waiting on the women of the black Isigotlu, and cleaning out their clay chamber pots. When the gates shut at night, all men, the councillors, were sent out. Dingana slept in a small private hut, an inlu called an ilau, because he had never married, a triangular enclosure on the eastern side of the black Isigotlu. He would choose one of the Umblunkulu to join him, one at a time. On the other side, the northwestern corner, Dingana had constructed a large isibaya, a lofty structure with high poles, ten of them supporting a large roof. It could hold up to 50 people, a kind of hall. The floor a mixture of green, black cow dung and antil sand, hardened and polished until it looked like marble. Unlike Shaka, who used to sit on a mat, Dingana sat on a huge chair carved out of a single block of the marula tree. No one else could sit on a chair of any kind. And nearby was the royal Amadlozi, the praise singer, Magulwana Kamkatini, who hailed from the Amawombe Amabuto. He wasn't alone. Two bizarre Zimbongi, who were more like court jesters, could be found alongside this official praise singer. Duda, who was a disabled man, could only move about on his hands and knees. And Mhai, a dwarf, who stood about three foot six inches high with bow legs. Mhai, as I said earlier, was the only man allowed inside the Izgotlo, where he'd then make rude jokes about the women's private parts, causing great merriment. The other main character in the coming drama was Dingan's Inkeku, his chief and duna, Masipula Kamamba. And like the snake of the same name, Kamamba was notoriously violent and a cruel man. Also keeping an eye on the arriving Boers were Dingana's dogs. He kept a number in the Izigotlu and favoured the large Igovu breed, a form of burbul that were bred in the Cape and brought back to Zululand by Shaka's impis who attacked the Amambondo in the 1820s. These dogs were various colours, black, white, brown, reddish brown, and sometimes Dingana set them on people just for a laugh. His favourite dog, though, is Makwedlan, overfed, fat and slow. Thus his name, Makwedlana means the male one who is always full. Ma, a prefix referring to a male, Kwedla, a verb meaning to be full or satisfied, and Na, a noun suffix which means the one who, the one who is always full, Makwedlana. The other dogs around the kraal were of the Africanus breed. They go back at least 7,000 years in southern Africa. The Africanus is the original dog of Africa. They can be territorial. They are watchful and protective of their loved ones, but affectionate and playful. They are easy to train. They strive to please their owners and are extremely intelligent. So, Retief and his party were entering this place of human and animal with magical significance when they rode in on the 5th of November, 1837, passing through the grand entrance which separated the two wings, or Izinhlangoti, the rows of more than a thousand huts. A disorientating place divided into sections called Izigaba, each one of these named after an Ibuto or regiment. Five on the left, or the eastern side, commanded by Nlela. Four on the right, commanded by Nzobo. These Nduna watched Retief's party enter the gate too. While inside, far from prying eyes, Dingana pondered the Boer's fate. He had a plan A and a plan B. He had tried plan A first. Plan B was to kill them all. What happened next is for next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. It helps increase the visibility of the series. You can head off to the website desmondlatham.blog if you want to contact me or Twitter stroke X at Des Latham. Till next, goodbye.